the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 53 Pride 2020 Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And I'm Alan Fogg. And a very warm welcome to our 2020 Pride special. Woohoo! Flag wavy, flag wavy. Woo! Yeah! Yes, we're getting it up. You sound gayer than I do. No, no, I'm I'm trying to get in with the mood here. Before we start, obviously, we've got to get tanked up. What have we got for tonight on the tonic screwdriver? Tonight on the tonic screwdriver, because last year somebody complained that the gin wasn't fruity enough. It was bland at zero. Yes, but you said you you wanted something fruity. So I have got a fruity Welsh gin. Welsh? I will whip out the tonic screwdriver and get the lid off. Which one is it tonight? This is Abba Falls Orange Marmalade Gin. Oh, very pallid. Uh, a refined balance of sweet and bitter orange flavours, a citrus hit with a warming aftertaste. And apparently we're not supposed to drink more than 14 units a, a week. Will that be doctor's orders, Dr. Axton? Mm, Does it say a day? No, it doesn't. It says a week. And this is from Abba Clethlidling. One of those Welsh places in the it's not near Bessie Code where we stayed. Uh, I've got some pause. I have no idea. Okay, what do we think? Uh, it's a bit bland. Just about get a hint of marmalade, but that's about it really, isn't it? It's not strong. You've not. Or you dilute me. You, you, you dilute it too much. It's not Simon's way to dilute it. You've know, it up a little bit. Oh, that's better. No, you just emptied most of the bottle into it. You're going to have a lot left. God, look at the amount of strength in that. Blimey. Well, you can't Actually, tell the strength of something just by looking ah, at it. Ah, now, ah, yes. Right. Now, bear in Accu-fee, mind... fee, that's better. That's much better. Infinitely better. Yes, apparently I make gin, the gin and tonic that's too weak. To be fair... Yes, who knew? Simon does not make short measures of tonic. Uh, this has had to have at least another double in to... Oh, uh, and some. Mmm. Mmm. It's because it's so hot, it's just all the... Ice is melted, even though the tonic's been Actually, in the fridge. That's, that's rather fucking fine. That, that's yeah, nice, nice, but you need a good whack of it to really get the flavour from it. Does it, it need tonic with it? Well, that's the question. Should this be just a, slip, a, a slipping gin? Should this be just a sipping gin? I don't think so. I think that would be too much of a sipping gin, but oh, here we go. Oh, he's about to slip it in. No, that's really nice as a sipping gin. Uh, no, it just needs... A, fuck me tight. Uh, no, that that just needs... A dash of tonic, but how beautiful. That's a beautiful gin. That's a sipping oh gin. How my. do you like that? Sipping gin, yeah, absolutely grand. Yeah, so, mm. my God, you're a wuss. No, I, I'm, I'm giving that five yeah, out of five. Are. I'm giving it five out of five. Really? Oh, it's a yeah. four. It, it's mm. a four from me. It's nice. It's not five territory. Yeah. I think it, it yeah, depends you how you mix it. You need a lot of it. Are you saying I don't know how to mix a gin properly? Uh, no, I, I just <laughs> think that in this particular instance, your hand may have slipped with the tonic. But that, five out of five for me, it, um, but it needs a very, very 50% mix it, it needs a lot less tonic than you would normally mix in. I mean, actually, with the, the normal tonic mix, it was a perfectly nice gin. Yes. But to get the orangey marmalade taste, which is very nice... You need a, a, a stronger hit of the gin. I agree with all that. No, I'm four. Yeah. I'm yeah, four. You're four. Uh, uh, yeah. 
it's only 41%, so you can afford to increase the doses a bit. Although we have just got through about half a bottle in these two drinks. That's so. splendid. Well, gentlemen, um, we are not going to do a Black Archive this time because uh, we can't be asked. So we're going to sail straight into our first Pride viewing of the evening. What have we got? We're going to watch a very British sex scandal, which oh, is... Oh, my dears. <laughs> <laughs> well, quite. Um, which is a dramatisation of the events around the life of Peter Wildblood leading up to the publication of the Wolfenden Report. Right. For those of us that don't know about the Wolfenden... We will be telling you about it after the event. No problem at all. This is a very short intro. Without further ado, let us run VT. 1950s. And a contented post-war Britain was in the grip of a brutal moral backlash. It was against homosexuals when they were labelled pansies and queers. I regard homosexuality as a cancer eating into the roots of ordinary, decent human relations. I'm sentencing you to seven years. Every year, a thousand men were sent to jail for homosexual offences. The maximum sentence for buggery was life imprisonment. A great many people that I, that I know of committed suicide when they were caught. It was such a such a stigma, such a such a terrible thing to be gay. Then, a sensational trial involving a leading Fleet Street journalist and Lord Montague Appeal electrified the nation. Its outcome so shook the establishment that life and the law for homosexuals would never be the same again. How the sex life of Britain changed for good and how gay lifestyles became socially acceptable. Up next, though, Feruza Balk, Neb Campbell, and got those two as well. quick I, I don't have Clapham Junction, the um, but I do have How Gay Sex Saved the World, uh, Changed the World. Saved the World! <laughs> so, that was A Very British Sex Scandal from 2007, which is a dramatisation with some interviews about... Peter Wildblood, the Wolfenden Committee and the Montague Trial. Peter Wildblood was a senior journalist at the Daily Mail in the 1950s. He was the royal correspondent and was appointed to be a political correspondent, but never actually took up that appointment. He met a, an RAF serviceman called Eddie McNally and they started a relationship and they went for a weekend holiday at the Beaulieu Estate with Lord Montague with a couple of other friends. As a result of that, there was a court case where Peter Wildblood and Lord Montague and Lord Montague's cousin, I think, was uh, were charged with um, homosexual offences, all of which ended up going to prison because of them. And when Peter Wildblood came out of prison, he testified in front of the Wolfenden Report, who were investigating the decriminalisation of uh, homosexuality and sex work. He was the only person prepared to go up in front of the, the committee and give his name. And the Wolfenden Report recommended that homosexuality be decriminalised. That was in 1957, and decriminalisation didn't happen for another 10 years. But really and truly, it was uh, the Wolfenden Report that, that started the ball rolling, and it was Peter Wildblood's testimony at the Wolfenden Report that 
encouraged them to um, to make the recommendations that they did. So we have an awful lot to owe to Peter Wildblood. Um, he went to prison, he lost his job, ended up as a TV writer and actually wrote an episode of Mr. Rose. So when we come to do Mr. Rose, we could uh, look at that and wrote some episodes of Crown Court and uh, Andy and Lisa from Round the Archives. We'll probably be able to tell you a great deal more about that than, than we can. I think it was a very good adaptation. Um, there's been a, a more recent adaptation called Against the Law that is a pure, a pure drama. I chose this one to look at because of the, the interviews with Peter Wildblood's contemporaries. And so we got a bit of real life experience as to what their lives were like. But all in all, I thought that was an extremely good uh, production. Boys, what did you think? I think it was a very good documentary. It goes to show how things were and how things have progressed now. So, in a way, it's challenging to see how things were then, but it's a reminder of how things were and how things needed to change and to how things are, thankfully, now. Mm. And if you think about it, where things will be in a further 20 years, you know, a lot's changed in 20 years now that I'm looking back on. You look in a further 20 years' time, not only from a homosexuality point standpoint, but... The current challenges that are ongoing in, in Britain at the moment with the Black Lives Matters and around the world. Hopefully that'll be a thing in the past and people look back in horror. To be honest, I mean, yes, I hope so as well. I think that'll take more than 20 years, but... 20 years ago, would you have seen where things are now? True. Uh, and no, I wouldn't. Fingers crossed. Let's set a date, 20 years' time. Yeah, might still be around. <laughs> hope so. Plenty of shares in gym by then. How rude. Ken? Do you need a moment? Yeah. I, mean, I, I suppose in a lot of ways this is easier for us to watch... Because we know what the reality of things have been, and even easier for me in a way, because I know how crappy things could be back in the late 80s, early 90s. I've got friends who, oh, I had friends who were of this vintage, and they they had a, a terrible time getting to meet people. Um, it was easier for my generation. It's easier for this generation. It's still not a... It's still not a level playing field. God, I remember getting my first laptop with dial-up connection and going on the Gator going, oh my God. And after that, there was no stopping you. Bitch. <laughs> I find that quite upsetting. In which case, it's a really good job I didn't show you Clapham Junction. Sort of the point I've, I've made from uh, quite a long time, I think we have progressed quite a long way. Definitely. Well, from that, I mean, the other thing, bear in mind, we're looking at um, a documentary describing how things were 70 years ago. Yeah. But I've always said you can't help who you fall in love with. How lonely must you have been when it was illegal to be in love with somebody? Yeah, but um, illegal and impractical are two different things. And, yeah, having talked to people who were around at that time... It was possible to be a couple. You had to be more careful. You had to be more realistic about what you could do. I mean, the, the terrible shame about the, or one of the terrible shames about the, the Wild Blood case is that after that court case, he and Eddie never met again. And one interpretation, and actually I think quite a realistic interpretation of the, the way he gave his evidence is that he was madly in love with Eddie. Things were, and we've been looking at a portrayal, and it's a it's a dramatization of of what went on. But you read the letters that they wrote to each other, and they did seem very infatuated. And had they been a straight couple, they would probably have got married and set up home together and been absolutely grand. 
Now, that doesn't mean that they couldn't have set up home together. Um, Peter Wildblood was obviously trying to set that in place by saying, I'm getting a, a place to myself and you can come and stay. Eddie was possibly jumping the gun a little bit by saying, um, I, I could come and live with you. The thing that it shows in a very poor light is the police, because you've got the the senior police commissioner giving evidence to the Wildblood report. And as I understand it, the dramatisation of that is taken from the transcripts of the, um, the Wildblood report. So it, it's pretty much verbatim what was said. Obviously, it's not everything that was said because the, um, the Wolfenden Commission went on for oh, a good several years. But the the police chief saying it's a disease, it's a cancer, it needs to be wiped out, you decriminalise it, you will just increase it. That was the way people thought at the time. And that's the way the police thought at the time. It's not the way things are now. That was not a comfortable watch. I am Two gay people, to me it was a different view, like Simon was saying. I look at it and go, wow, I'm really grateful for the way things have changed. Mm. I look at it more as a sort of lens of, yeah, actually, I'm bloody grateful and thankful that things have changed and people have stood up and made a difference so that people can live a life that they choose to live. Hey, you know, there were couples in there that were saying, we've been together 50, 60 years or whatever. They got together during this time and kept their head on, uh, kept their, their lives to themselves. They'd, um, one of the most telling things in there was uh, one of the men saying, it was an bed. enormous day, the day that we could get a double bed and get rid of the two singles. But it doesn't mean that they weren't able to get together. It was just a different way of forming relationships. And the friends that you're worrying about in that time, would they have been single? Possibly. Or they may have met somebody. What What ifs from 70 years ago, I'm not sure, help very much. We've moved on, yeah. thankfully. But as a piece of television, I thought it was extremely good. Definitely powerful. Quite a good balance. What have you got for us next? Well, as a special treat for Alan, because he's such a huge Doctor Who fan, Alan has very graciously agreed to watch a a Doctor Who story. Right, boys and girls, we need something a little bit cheery. Uh, after what some of us regard as a happy reminder of a move forward and some of us regard as a unhappy reminder of how the world used to be. So we have got a Ninth Doctor adventure. Simon, what are we watching? We are watching the two-part Christopher Eccleston story, The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances. And why are we watching this on a gay-themed evening? What could possibly be the connection? Because it's fucking brilliant. What other reason do we need to watch it? But it introduces a puffy companion um, and is second set in the Second World War, which is a time period that Alan likes the drama of. And I promised him a Doctor Who story that he may actually enjoy. Did anyone say you were allowed to play with my Doctor Who toys? It's a <laughs> Now, Alan, you're not a great fan of Doctor Who, are you? I've not got into it the same as I have Star Trek. Star Trek, I would watch back-to-back constantly. 
it just didn't grip me. The only um, reason I ask you, we've been here before, uh, but this is one of those stories that was instantly classified as a classic. It's very, very rare that, that this happens. Um, well, the Empty Child Doctor Dances is... It, it, it's very rare up until the last few years where every bloody story is classified as an immediate classic. Re- do you really think? Oh, the, the Jodie Whittaker ones, yes. It's, oh, this is a classic, oh, this is a classic. Really? Yeah, yeah but my, by, not by ten fans who happen to lick Chris Chibnall's ass. I mean, generally considered a classic. I don't think that's happened for the past two years. I mean, I, I think it's very telling that all the polls on Twitter where you've got... Jodie Whittaker stories versus Tom Baker stories um, or whatever Whittaker stories are massively losing on that and that's no comment on how good she is because I think she's she does a good job with very poor scripts bear in mind this was at the time we had nine doctors and you know compared with Things like the Talons of Wang Chiang, always considered a classic. Genesis of the Daleks, considered a classic. This was up there immediately and justifiably in the top ten all-time Doctor Who stories. Now, that's that's not a usual reaction to a Doctor Who story. No, um, when they did the. Season 19, um, end of season poll, Kinder came last. Really? Yeah. Kinder was last? Kinder was last. Who uh, were they polling? Dwight. Good grief. After Fall to Doomsday, even. When was this made? 2005. Yeah, especially the fact it's coming on the It's still pretty good, though. Pretty good. I can't say that I'm looking at this and thinking the special effects of aged. And a house coat. I remember my grandmother wearing a house coat. Something I've been looking for would have fallen from the sky about a month ago, but not a bomb, not the usual kind anyway. It wouldn't have exploded. And it would have looked something like this. A scribble. That's the worst diagram of a bomb I've ever seen. It says an awful lot for this episode that we've supposed to be commentating for what, half an hour. We've said bugger all. Yeah. All three of us. And you can't stand up to I'm just trying to be silent with Doctor Who's on set. Anytime you want to stop, you want it to stop, it'll stop. <laughs> The other thing I would say about this sequence is it stays at 23 minutes to 10 the entire time. So, when you say your companion, how disappointed should I be? I don't believe they'd have light like that showing during the blackout. Now you're being picky. I think it was more to show that Albion Hospital was a major factor in episodes four and five. Mm. Which, obviously, you've not seen. Or could be asked to be seen. I'll take that nod of the head. This is plodding along, isn't it? 
work for it. Room 802, that's where they took the first victim, the one from the crash site. And you must find Nancy again. Nancy? She knows more than she's saying. She won't tell me, but she... It's still a good effect, 15 oh, years on. Brilliant. I know you've got plenty of tools in here. I've been watching this house for ages. And I'd like another look round your kitchen cupboards. I was in an hurry the first time. I want to see if there's anything I missed. The food on this table! It's an awful it's... lot of food, isn't it, Mr Lloyd? Half this street thinks your missus must be messing about with Mr Aberstock, the butcher. But she's not, is she? You are. I think that was the first gay reference. I was about to who. say that's the first gay reference. I think we had. Right, boys and girls. Well, we got a little bit engrossed in Doctor Who last night. And as a result, there is no commentary at all for some of The Empty Child and all of the Doctor dances because it is, let's be honest, one of the best Doctor Who stories there has ever been. And, uh, yes, it's absolutely superb. Let's be completely honest about this. I fell asleep because I'd, uh, I'd had a, a very long day at work the day before. You were still snivelling about the uh, Wolfenden stuff. And Alan was so engrossed in the, in the programme because he'd never seen it before. <laughs> That's why there there isn't a commentary. None of this. You were so blown away by the brilliance of Doctor Who. It is it is brilliant, but you were snivelling in a corner. No, um, that is that is definitely true. Yes. Do you know the accused Wild Blood? Yes. When did you first meet him? February, nineteen fifty-two. How did you come to meet Wild Blood? I was just standing outside near Piccadilly Tube Station when I noticed this gentleman. And I spoke to him and he spoke to me. What did he say? Would I go back with him to where he lived? And did you? Yes. And did you stay the night? Yes. And did anything occur between you? We committed buggery with each other. Now look, let's be quite clear of your meaning. When you say we committed buggery with each other, what exactly did you do to him? Put my penis up his anus. And he put his up mine. I was moved by the plight of gay men in the 50s and 60s. I thought that was bloody brilliant. It, it was. Is, it was brilliantly done. Um, I suppose. I suppose the the thing is, for me and Alan, none of it was really news. Mm. Uh, whereas in your insular little world, you possibly didn't know very much about it. <laughs> well, you know me, just England for the English and all that jingoist, as you call it, jingoistic bollocks. There, there are no, 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 no. They were all straight men. <laughs> No, it was it was more the fact that I mean it's not exactly been hidden. It's just not something that I've been exposed to. So so looking at a specific case and a landmark case, let's be honest, through straight eyes for the first time, what hit me and what upset me the most about it was just the loneliness. It was horrible to think that all these gay men had no outlet for their love. They couldn't just meet people as we do now. And as I said last night, we live in a, a much more progressive society now. Whatever failings are still there, we have moved a long way in 50, 60 years. Thank God. 
Yes, I, I think that that's very true. Um, I think there's an element of argument to say that culturally there's been a, a dilution of things. So you you don't get well things things like Polari and the the sort of drag queens on on the effectively cabaret circuit um, that I remember uh, from when I was first going around gay bars. You don't really get that anymore. You see, Polari but, is one of those things we really should look at at some point. I know it was out there this whole sub language that was right in plain sight, but I. I wouldn't recognise it if it was spouted at me. I know Kenneth Williams was, he dropped a lot of it in. Julian and Sandy was all about Polari. I don't even know what Julian and Sandy is. It was one of the regular slots on Round the Horn. From that side of things, you bring a lot to the table that I've never seen before, but the whole gay history thing is just a... a bit more uh, relevant to me. Well, it's not only that, but it's it's a gap in my knowledge and all been fascinating to learn so far. We'll watch Victim at some point with Paul. Um, That is an absolutely brilliant film. It doesn't sound very cheery. Uh, it's very eye-opening because it was a a film about blackmail of uh, gay men, which used to happen a lot. And there, although there was somebody fairly famous who I can't remember, said that the the criminalisation of homosexuality was basically a blackmailer's charter. But the thing about Victim is it was a film that was made in the early 60s, so when being gay was still illegal. And it, it almost wrecked Dirk Bogart's career. It's a really, really good film. We'll do that on a, a three-way cinema club at some point. Victim isn't something that Alan will comfortably sit through because it's black and white. He's not here for this this morning's recording because he's found better things to do. He's but overcome he, with emotion at The Empty Child. He said to say how much he enjoyed it, actually, which, considering it's Doctor Who and he's very, very, very anti-Doctor Who, is really quite incredible and bodes well for forcing him to watch Blink or Midnight or, or something. We'll not turn him into a fan. But if we're giving but, him the cream of the crop, well, Empty Child, Blink and Midnight, I think is pretty much getting there. I rewatched Midnight the other night and I'd forgotten just how good it is. I last watched it a couple of years ago, I think. It's one I've, I've, I've seen a few times, so it's one that I thought was fantastic when I first saw it and I still think it's fantastic. I'm looking forward to that getting thrown up by um, the randomizer. It's one of those buried away, those cheap little episodes. It's all done on one set, the cost-cutting episode for that series. But my goodness me, it's it's brilliant yeah but dragging us back to gay issues we of course watched we at least majority watched the dr jances and the empty child which is generally regarded by fans as one of the best stories that we've ever had in doctor who um written by stephen superb and as you pointed out last night introduces john barrowman's character captain jack harkness which, uh, although, the, I mean, there have been in various other media gay or bisexual characters, this was the first gay stroke bisexual character thrown on screen in proper television Doctor Who. That was overtly and unambiguously gay or bisexual. I mean, you, you know, I, I still think that we're viewed through a modern lens. Ben comes across as as being gay. Uh, yes, has- and having, having reviewed The War Machines, it can be viewed that way. And to be honest there's a very good argument for it yeah it's a modern viewing it's obviously not the way it was intended at the time but you've got a a young working class sailor out on the tiles chatting away to polly and not making a move on her at all and jumping up and down on, on the dance floor with both polly and dodo and giving them both equal time that's not allowed out on the pull that's somebody repressed who's been able to let his hair down a bit 
that's long been my reading of that that scene. Now, it, it's a very modern interpretation of it. And going through, I mean, you've got Annika Wills who are saying, oh, yes, there were Ben and Polly were just mates and there was nothing romantic. I, I think that's absolutely true. I think there were just mates and there was nothing, nothing romantic. And I think there's, there's one obvious explanation for that because, well, look at her. Well, I wasn't going to go down that route, but yes, look at her. Uh, she was the epitome of the 60s starlet. Yeah, and... Okay, once they'd developed their relationship and developed their rapport and they'd become friends. But when he first meets her in the Inferno, it's a, a very, very attractive woman trying to cheer him up. And he doesn't react like a young straight lad being chatted to by a very attractive woman. In the same way as you look at Jamie and Victoria, and it's fairly clear that they're a romantic couple. You look at the way they are at the beginning of the the Ice Warriors and that whole vibro chair thing. Um, <laughs> that, that's very, very coupley. And the only thing that really gets Jamie very upset throughout the entirety of his run in Doctor Who is um, saying goodbye to Victoria. Even saying goodbye to the Doctor in the war games doesn't get him as, as upset as saying goodbye to Victoria. You've got Ian and Barbara, which is, uh, watch the Romans, that's just obvious. Oh, that's anyway. very, very postcoital. But on the subject of Captain Jack, when that first went out... Oh, it was a, a huge deal. Because, yeah, there'd been stuff in fanfic. Well, there was but, Izzy and Destry in the comics. I'm just trying to think oh, of... basically fanfic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yes, um, beyond the realms of fanfic... How was it for you? <laughs> <laughs> Matron. Um, the, the thing about Captain Jack is that there was no ambiguity about it at all. I, I, I've talked about an interpretation of the relationship between Ben and Polly, and it is an interpretation. Mm. And it could be purely as innocent as uh, they were just mates who happened to end up traveling together. I think my view is a more realistic view, but there is nothing overt in the series that sort of points toward, towards that. Oh, they, I mean, the other thing is him enjoying the whole massage and suntan and, and all that bit in the uh, in the macro terror. I mean, that, that's not really straight working class lad from the 60s territory. Possibly not. Oh, you never know when Tom, when he was on shore leave. He could have been out for a massage every night. Fucking knotted and working on that ship. Oh, yeah. Ease me joints. Maybe not. That's euphemism. Right. Anyway, back to Cap Captain Jack. Yeah, it was a, a huge deal at the time. Um, it was something that a lot of, shall we say, traditional fans were very upset about. I class myself as a traditional fan, and I can't say I gave a toss. Oh, don't be silly. You have social skills. Well, that is true. But the one thing that leaps out at me is in, um, is it Parting of the Ways? He kisses the Doctor full on. Yeah. It's not a lingering moment, but it's there. And I thought, wow, a man has kissed the Doctor on telly somewhere out there in internet land. Someone is fucking furious. Yes. Ian Levine has clenched so hard he's imploded. <laughs> the cosmic blancmange. I didn't I, I, I see any of that, but it must have gone on. What, Ian Levine clenching? Oh. No, I, I, I remember him as being somebody on Outpost Gallifrey at the, at the time who was very, this should not be on Doctor Who. In the same way as you got a whole lot of people who were on Twitter saying Bill shouldn't be as open about being a, a, a lesbian as she is. No, Really? You see, I yeah. missed all of this. 
I was only thinking today just how interesting a character Bill was. I love Bill. I thought she was fantastic. She and she had one of the best character exits ever. Certainly the best character exit in anybody in in New Who. And they fucked it up with the puddle. If they had just left her as cyberized and then killed off, it would have been phenomenal. What is it that you've said about the uh, companions in the RTD era and companions in the Moffat era? Oh, God, by the time you get to the Moffat era and the many many lives and deaths of Rory, they're basically superheroes. You, You can kill them off and you know that they will bounce back. Captain Jack was basically Captain Scarlet, wasn't he? That's not a bad analogy. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd love to claim credit for it. it. It's something I've stolen off somebody on, on the internet somewhere. <laughs> um, but, but he is. And he even kind of looks like Captain Scarlet. He does have that sort of lantern jawed. Yeah. Getting back to the, the, in quotes, gay kiss with the Doctor. It didn't even register. And the Doctor knows exactly what's going on because if you think about the end of the Doctor dances, where they rescue Jack, uh, and Rose is saying, "Oh, I think I think Jack wants to dance," and the Doctor's saying, "Yeah, I'm sure he does." But with with which one of us? No, the the only thing that I've found genuinely in the whole of the history of Doctor Who, the only thing that's pissed me off is the Timeless Child. That's it. Yeah. Well. Well. well, Yeah. Let's just not. Oh, come on. How camp can we go? The Cybermen in frills, darling. We will skip over that for a future podcast. The audience will not be able to interpret the look that I'm giving you. I can feel it through the ether. It's a giant fucking pile of wank is what it is. Please, someone somewhere cancel Doctor Who. Please. Never thought I'd say that. No, no, no. I I don't agree with that at all. I think Jodie Whittaker should be given a decent chance with some good stories because... She she's a very talented actor. You see her in other stuff, and she's great. Yeah, but her only chance now for redemption is the Colin Baker option, which is big finish. Get hold of her and write some actual Doctor Who. No, the redemption comes with um, Chibnall fucking off. He's the problem, not her. I, I completely agree. He, he's done this monumental fan wank. I wasn't going to talk about Timeless Children, but we weren't, but we're um, going to do. I, I did done this I did monumental this fan wank about legitimizing the Doctor's fifteen-second clip from yeah. ignoring the fact that in the Three Doctors it says, "Show me the Doctor in his first incarnation," so making oh, it very clear God. that there wasn't anybody before him. Ascension of the Cybermen to the Timeless Children. It's the equivalent of being interrupted by your mum in your vinegar stroke. We really mustn't get on to this. Of, of the three, Villa Diodati was my absolute favourite. I thought that was fantastic, and I really don't care that it did. Here it comes. It contradicts some... Um, Here it comes. Some fanfic. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, because at the end of the day, that's what Big Finish is. It may be good fanfic, it may be well-produced fanfic at times, but it is fanfic. Anyway, essentially the Cybermen, it was quite nice to look at. It, it didn't really have any depth to it. And then you get onto the Timeless Children, which is just... Do you remember a few years ago, there was that um, 12th or 13th century painting of Jesus on the uh, the wall of a church somewhere in Italy, and somebody came, came in and... <laughs> and to, restored it. To, re- to restore it, <laughs> to restore it, had, had washed it away and drawn it back almost in crayon. Well, it, with Dr. Hennessy, <laughs> that, that's kind of what Chibnall's done. It's, it's somebody giving him the Mona Lisa, and he scrawled on it in crayon. Hmm. That's quite a good analogy. 
Having drifted far enough and, off topic on this... And actually, to carry, that, carry on that analogy, it doesn't detract from the brilliance of the um, original. The Mona Lisa is still the Mona Lisa, even if somebody has drawn dick pics over it. But it's like somebody writing, this is a fake underneath, x-raying it, and the x-ray replaces the original image. No, I think it's somebody drawing a dick pic on the Mona Lisa with crayon. Chris Chibnall. What have you done? Please fuck off. I was actually thinking, had, prior to being wanker in charge, prior to that, had he written anything worth watching? Well, I've never seen a single episode of Broadchurch. Or... No, I, I, was thinking, I was thinking in terms of who. Broadchurch is a very traditional crime thing. Uh, Harlan Ellison and not Harlan Ellison, whoever it is that did the five, do that sort of hidden history things far, far better. The thing that sold Broadchurch was David Tennant and Olivia Coleman, and you could give those two the phone book to read out, and it would be compelling. In terms of clever plotting, there was a, a, a show called Mayday um, around at the same time that was a million times better than, than Broadchurch, but didn't have the David Tennant factor. So there there is nothing clever about Broadchurch at all. What, what's he done on Doctor Who? Cyberwoman, that was shite. Yeah, the Torchwood episode. Oh, 42. Now, where have we seen that story before? Oh, you mean, yeah. Well, I mean, Planet it, of it, Evil, Mark it's Planet II. Planet of Evil, yeah. And it, it's quite a nicely done version of Planet of Evil, but it's still Planet of Evil. Dinosaurs on a spaceship. Fuck me, pink. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. It was a wonderful title, wonderful story, not a flaw in it. Ah, pile of steaming shite. And I've spoken before about the kind of literary territory marking that you got in the Doctor Who novels. Well, that is Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. It's, I want to be the one to use Nefertiti. Never mind that it makes no sense whatsoever that she's there. Never mind the fact that she contributes nothing whatsoever to the story. It's just, I want to piss on this little bit of history. So get the tiny todger out. He must have done others, but I can't remember for the life of me what they are. Wait a minute, I've got the internet up. I've got the internet up. I sound like somebody's granddad, don't I? Um, <laughs> mind you, I'm old enough to be, so let's have a look. Produced Born and Bred, which was shite. Power of Three is not one of his, is it? It's all a bit shit. Life, Life on Mars, which is apparently quite good. I've, um, oh, he I've didn't never... write all of Life on Mars. That no, was no, no, no. actually great. He was the only writer other than the show's creators to write for both series of it. Law and Order UK. Yeah. Uh, he wrote eight episodes during the first two series of Torchwood, including both series finales. Well, they were fairly awful. 42, yeah, uh, Planet of Evil. And then Hungry Earth and Cold Blood, which I actually kind of like, to be honest. They're all right, but there's not enough story to go through two episodes. They could have uh, quite happily done that oh, in yeah. one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then Dinosaurs in a Spaceship and Power of Three. I can't actually remember what the Power of Three is about, to be I honest. Can, it's one of those I can never remember a single thing beyond the cubes thing. I can't remember the resolution, what the point of the cubes is, never. I've seen it, what, three or four times now. I still can't remember the ending. Oh, he wrote, he wrote Countryside for um, for Torchwood. That's quite a, that was quite a good one. Fair dues, that was all right. That was all right. Oh, and he wrote Anton. De uh, he wrote uh, a chunk no. of stuff for Anton Deck's Saturday Night Takeaway. Ah, oh, what a lovely story! Should we stop uh, this character assassination? Yes, moving away from Crayon Boy. Should we open the post bag? Now you you've <laughs> done this deliberately. You've got me all what riled up, so I'll be nasty to this poor fellow who's written to us. 
poor fellow. It's given me the chance to create another jingle, so I'm a perfectly happy boy. Now, boys and girls, we've got a letter here. Oh, God, it doesn't involve crying, does it? On the back of our Revenge of Brexit episode, which is some time ago now, but we had a letter in via electronic mail, which says, Had to stop listening to this after constantly listening to the straight white guy complain that it's okay to pick on white guys. Boo fucking who. You've sat in a position of white privilege and say it's okay to be racist if it's a stereotype. Well, as someone who has it okay to call a fag and a sissy for years, I say to you, get over it. I, among many people, had to listen to racist and homophobic jokes for decades and get over it. And now that it's not okay, it's political correctness and the nanny state gone wild. I'm 56, and I'm really disappointed with the fact that your whiny view gets released constantly, while Mr. Gay NHS never defends the other side. Get over it and grow a pair like the rest of us is. Um, well, Mr. Gay NHS, what do you think Doctor. of that? Oh, sorry. It's Doctor twice over. Thank You're you obviously very much. a consultant, you just don't know it. No, I'm not, and I'm not going to go into the whole... Medical hierarchy is even more hierarchical than the than the army, um, and I am not and never will be a consultant. Anyway, For, to would give you my, like to say something about that? I think I might. I'm going to go about this a bit arse about face. Not a surprise. Mr. G- Mr. Gay NHS does pull me up constantly on things he doesn't agree with. We uh, Simon and I are, are very much on opposite sides of the fence on many issues, and we talk about them as mates, which is why we're still mates after 15 years. He never lets me get away with a fucking thing, as he's demonstrated on the podcast for anyone who's ever listened to any of them. Just going through it, the straight white guy complained that it's okay to pick on white guys. I never said that at all. My personal view uh, is very specifically on the current trend to call people gammon which is all based on, you may well laugh, after we went to Neil Morris's pub, The Plume of Feathers, Gammon was offered on the menu and he looked straight at me. Uh, (laughs) um, The the whole Gammon thing is based on the mottled skin that middle-aged, slightly overweight men such as myself have so it's all based on looks rather than opinion no, except except it isn't the the gammon description is based on looks but actually the gammon as a descriptor is based on attitude in the same way as karen may be based on the whole 40 something blonde american but is actually used to describe an attitude so, oh no i get you but gammon is very specifically It's very specifically the look, but what it's used to describe is the attitude. I I agree. I agree. But what I mean is its basis is in how somebody looks, just as we're not even going to go there because that's not not what this is about. But you've sat in a a position of white privilege, so it's okay to be racist if it's a stereotype. No, that's not what I said at all. I really wish this... Uh, gentlemen, had listened to the full podcast, you would have heard what I said. No, it's not okay to be racist. All I said was that stereotypes are a shortcut 
for comedians. That's it. And they're used to this day by black comedians as much as white sitcoms. It's just a shortcut, the end. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this about Goodness Gracious Me, which I think is a brilliant... It's fantastic. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. It would not be appropriate for white comedians to have done that. But because they were all Asian comedians, absolutely hilarious. I mean, um, in terms of now, that, this, the other way letter, around, mm. we've been through that. I think, really, my point, which if he'd listened to the full thing, he would have got, I think we really should have got beyond looking at everything as offensive and stereotypical. It's just a comedy shortcut. Whatever it is, whether it's Apu in The Simpsons or Goodness Gracious Me or or anything like that. They're just comedy shortcuts. There's no intent to offend there. I don't think. I honestly don't think there is. Uh, yeah, I agree with you that there there isn't. That that doesn't necessarily make it acceptable because you've got things that would have been acceptable at one particular point in history that now aren't. And I, I'm not particularly thinking of Apu in the Simpsons. I, would, I was more thinking of things like the David Wellens doing and Matt Lucas doing the, the the blackface in Little Britain that they have since said is completely inappropriate and they've had removed from the, from the episodes things that could be interpreted as homophobic um, stuff that the the goodies and that and that team were doing back in the early 70s and all of them have apologized for that and said if we were doing this comedy now we would not think that this was appropriate and it was of its time i think things do move on and i i think you can see things through the the lens of history and say well actually yeah it wasn't well thought out it wasn't appropriate we wouldn't do that now but that's the crux of it we would not do that now. At the time, it wasn't, or it may not. I know that certain things, even at the time, weren't very well received. Yeah, Korean language, chips. Hello. I've not seen just, Korean chips. We really must do this. It's, um, it's really anything that Johnny, uh, Johnny Spate did. And, and I've talked about this before. Um, and people bang on about the Alf Garnet being an interpretation of other people's attitudes. That may be very true. But when everything you write has to be excused as, oh, this is an interpretation of somebody's attitude, you have to sit back and say, well, actually, look, this is the every single thing that you write. This isn't somebody else's attitude. This is your attitude. And Johnny Spate did not write anything. Yeah, you have said this before. Yeah, That it's... was extremely right wing. But it's more um, the, I think, really, the, the tone of the email is that you and I, and uh, specifically I, I would say, are saying that it's okay to be racist and homophobic. I have said this before. Sam and I are just mates watching old TV, drinking gin, getting pissed, and enjoying it. The, we're not seeking to be radical. We're not seeking to set the internet on fire or get colossal viewing figures and sponsors and patreons and all that. We're just doing this because we enjoy it. Um, we're not seek. We're definitely not seeking to offend anybody if anybody is we apologize it's just two mates having a laugh um but we're certainly not saying it's okay to be racist and homophobic and what i would say is that i'm i am very sorry if what either of us have said or haven't said has upset somebody i think what that letter demonstrates is that the last thing that this gentleman has done is got to get over anything because it all sounds pretty raw and i am very sorry that he's had the experiences that he has but it doesn't sound as though he's got over anything and if he feels that our podcast is bringing that back into focus then he's probably done the right thing in not listening to it yeah we're not terribly 
I will say this quite openly, as I've said before. We come to this. Simon, on the whole, introduces me to stuff that I've never seen. I look at it through my lens, analyse it through a modern eye. Simon's seen this many times before through, again, a different point of view. We drink gin, we comment on it, the end. That's pretty much it. What we really want to do is expose people to archive television that might be of interest. That's the bottom line. Yeah, and I I do call Ken out on... Frequently. Many, many of the things that, that he says. Uh, we definitely disagree about politics. And if you listen to any of the Brexit episodes, then that will be abundantly <laughs> clear. Um, but this isn't a political podcast. I'm not going to leap down his throat at every little comment that he makes. We're on different sides of the coin on so many things. The thing that we're on the same side of the coin about is not being a shit to anybody. That's basically the bottom line. Don't be a shit to each other. I know you struggle a little bit with the the concept that I keep talking about in that nobody has the right from outside a marginalised community to tell that marginalised community what they get offended by. So you and I cannot tell people of colour what they're allowed to be offended by or what they're not allowed to be offended by. Oh, sort of. My, my view on it is that it's 2020. Racism at the moment only travels in one direction. And the sort of rationale behind that is that, oh, you white people. You've had it your own way for 400 years, possibly longer, we don't know. So it's your turn. I don't hold with that. And I don't I don't think that's the rationale, to be perfectly honest. I know it's, it's the way that you interpret somehow, it. But it it's sometimes it, how it comes across. But, I, I mean, but the bottom line that, that don't be a shit to each other, there should be the 2020 value that everybody adheres to, not yep. my voice is bigger than yours and I should be... I love the idea that everybody's equal. I genuinely do. But we're a long way from that. We, we are, um, and allowances should be made. There is institutional raci- um, racism. Um, there is no getting away from that in the same way as there's sexism and a glass ceiling. You can't argue that it's there. And what about you homosexuals? That... Uh, yeah. That is a little bit different, and this is possibly <laughs> going to be an unpopular point of view. There is no hiding the fact that somebody is a person of colour. There's no hiding the fact that somebody is a woman. If you choose to for your career, it is possible to not be open about the fact that you're gay. I don't think that people should have to. It's not something I've ever felt the need to, but there are people who have, there are people who do. And the bottom line is that is something that is possible to cover up should you should you want to, should you choose to, in terms of the way you present yourself to other people. I'm not saying that it's something that's po- possible to change in terms of uh, reprogramming or re-education, that, that that's just brainwashing and a load of bollocks. But if your career is sufficiently important for, for you and you feel that don't want to be open at work, that is something you can choose to do. Whereas a woman or a person of colour doesn't have the option to do that. I know a lot of people at work um, who are not out and open about their sexuality. That is a personal comfort thing that people can choose how to present themselves. No, I I stand by this assertion. 90-odd percent of people don't give a shit. It's just the 5% of people who are really, really vocal about everything that they will not stand. You get these campaigns against 
You're not going to change the mind. I have always said that the worst way to uh, to achieve gay equality is by legislation. The thing that changes people people's minds is cousin Fred, who lives with his boyfriend and is a normal functional member of society. The two women who live in the flat above who will look after your dog when you're out, out at work and have an emergency. The everyday people that you see where you, you can say, well, actually, do you know what? There is nothing weird and scary about this. If you come steamrolling in with legislation to say that you must accept this, that will put people's back up. Coming in with legislation that says there is legal equality for this group of people, that is incredibly important. But the thing that actually changes people's minds is a visible example. One of the hugest things for gay equality was starting to get gay characters in the in soap operas. It was a massive deal when the Michael Cashman played the first gay character in uh, in EastEnders because it was suddenly normalising things. Soap operas normalise things, um, and over the years, it's been used to normalise a lot of issues and not not just gay politics, but uh, mental health suicide um, illnesses have been normalized by the fact that there are recognizable characters in soap opera. Uh, and now it's got to the point where there is a gay character in a soap opera who is an interesting character who also happens to be gay. It's taken quite a long time to get there, but there is now that group of characters. So it's normalizing it for a large chunk of the population. Probably doesn't make it easier for somebody who's 56 and has had to listen to a whole lot of crap over the whole of his life. And I am sorry. And if anything that we say triggers this, it's a pity, but I'm sure there are other podcasts that you will be more comfortable listening to. So I just wanted to finish off by saying a little something about privilege. And when we were talking about, uh, there were, I was saying that somebody who was gay, for example, or has some sort of kind of invisible disability can hide their lack of privilege as a result of, of that to a certain extent in the workplace and in their interactions with people. And there are people who have privileges that are very obvious. So you and I are white, male, middle-aged, um, those are markers of privilege right there. There are invisible privileges as well. So being straight, being able-bodied, not having a, um, things that do impact on your life but aren't immediately obvious when you first see people are easier to deal with. Okay, so that's the, the, the first thing. It is possible to draw a mask over that privilege or, or lack of privilege. And, you know, the first time you uh, you meet somebody, you generally don't expect to get in a, into a, a discussion about their sexuality unless you're meeting them under some fairly specific circumstances on a work-based interaction. It's not something that's relevant, whereas if you're meeting somebody who is a woman or you're meeting somebody who has a visible disability or you're meeting somebody who is a person of colour, then there's no getting around the fact that you can see that there is that lack of privilege. I think getting back to the the letter that we were discussing, there really was a, a confusion of, of those two things. The gentleman started off talking about racism, but very quickly segued into homophobia, neither of which are, are acceptable. Um, and I think we both sing from that particular hymn we sheet. Certainly do. But it is possible to cover up sexuality in the way that it isn't possible to cover up race. That's not to say that it's something that people should feel they have to do, but it is possible to do. And yeah, there are, there are lots of places in the world where that has to be done for, for somebody's safety. If we look at America at the moment, and I, I know we have a different opinion to me on the, the Black Lives Matter movement, but the lack of racial privilege that black people have in America 
puts them not just at a disadvantage in terms of housing and education and work opportunities. In a lot of places, it puts their lives in danger. I, I do agree. Um, America's a completely different case to Britain. And Steve the only Lawrence. thing I'll say on the BLM thing, uh, as I say for a lot of other things, it's entirely relevant in America, which is just a complete basket case. There is very obviously a problem. In Britain, less so. We have moved on a long way. But just in terms of... Because I'm the same with a lot of... Uh, what's the word? Moral crusades. There is a lot of... I'm not trying to detract the value from them in any way or or deny that there is any worth to these things. But sometimes you can push at an open door a little bit too hard to the point where it starts to close again. And just with the BLM thing, I just think it went a, a, a touch too far in Britain and actually started turning people against it that were on side up until that point? Um, I'm not sure I, I agree with that, to be perfectly honest. I, I don't think that... I mean, what are you thinking of that went a, a bit too far? What I mean is that it's... What you're saying is that there were aspects of the, the protest movement that you felt went too far um, and put people off supporting BLM. So can you give an example of that? Well, the, I think that the defacing statues and I think that the starting to... You're talking about Bristol and the, the statue of the slaver that was pulled down. Well, not just that. I'm talking about people that have links or views to slavery. But the whole of Liverpool was built on slavery. You wouldn't pull it down. You wouldn't. Yeah, but there is a there is a massive difference between uh, the way Liverpool's reacted to that and the way Bristol has reacted to that. You look at Liverpool, right on the uh, the waterfront at Man Island, there is a massive museum of slavery. Liverpool is not trying to to hide from it. It is apologising for its past and moving beyond it. You have the situation in Bristol where you have that very prominent statue of somebody who, who made his fortune through slavery. The population of Bristol has been asking for that statue to be taken down for decades and have been ignored by the, by the council. Well, I'm not so actually talking about are... Bristol. It's, that's one isolated example. Um, but this went on up and down the country. Parliament Square was defaced. And you start finding tenuous reasons to deride people from history. I just don't think I don't, that's healthy. I don't agree that slavery is a tenuous reason. No, what I mean is you start finding somewhat tenuous links. There's views that are held today that in 150 years, innocuous though they are now, will not be acceptable in 150 years. But you can't just keep erasing bits of history, pretending they never happened or deleting those people from history. The but there, way... there was never there was never any suggestion of deleting these things from history. Um, what there was was a request to make it less publicly lauded. Take, for example, that, um, okay, you don't want to talk about Bristol. So let's talk about a, a, something that is close to your heart, Winston Churchill, and the, the statue of Winston Churchill that was never actually defaced, but was was covered up with boardings just in case somebody might happen to object to some fairly clear racism in his history. Um, there was somewhere. Do you, a... do, you, do you want to just erase the fact that a, a lot of what Winston Churchill did was fairly massively racist? No, I'm not trying to erase anything. Um, I wouldn't cover it up at all. I wouldn't try and smudge over or defend or any of these things but covering them up and then burying this these bits of past and but nobody nobody has suggested doing that there are museums there are there are history books um what 
statues do is give a very public this is somebody who was important enough to have their image immortalized and this is somebody that we think is still important enough to keep their image immortalized nobody's suggesting that we should erase the history of of slavery but there is a big difference between that and having statues of renowned slavers um and again with with winston churchill there is the whole british jingoistic he saved the, the country for the second world war Neither you nor I have the right to tell anybody who whose family was affected by the actions during the Second World War in Calcutta. Nobody has the right to tell those people that they shouldn't be offended by what happened. No, I'm not trying to say that they shouldn't. But part yeah, of and the... if, if part of that offence is there is a publicly lauded statue that is emphasizing purely one aspect of that historical figure then there should there should be a a sensible debate about whether that statue is what in a multicultural society we should be saying this is important enough to have on public display and if marginalized people feel that their their voices are not being listened to and this is what happened in bristol um, but if marginalized people feel that their voices are not being listened to then you can't blame people for taking it taking things into their own hands I personally don't agree with vandalism, but I can see why people would want to make their mark on things. The whole thing about the um, TV program that we started off watching as a result of this was particularly the, uh, the history of Peter Wildblood is saying, this is my life that you're ignoring. This is the reality of my my existence that you are marginalizing. I am doing something about this. And he was a, a man of words. So that's what he, he was a journalist. That's what he used. And the words that he used were uh, to persuade the, the Wolfenden Committee to basically change their way of thinking. There are other people who are more pro-direct action. And you know what, if, if there's something that you find that, that offensive, I find it very difficult to, to, to criticise somebody for acting on it. it. might not be what I would do, but it's not something that I could criticise other people for doing. Actually, in, in kind of the same way as around the time there were all the predominantly peaceful BLM protests in London, there was also the Britain First protests of turning up in front of the statues of Winston Churchill and doing the Nazi salute. People do have the right to do that, but they also, one, there are consequences to that action if you're going to be doing that sort of thing in public expect that videos of that to be shared and expect people to be offended by it um in the same ways you've got no what's that dreadful actor's name lawrence fox at the moment who is coming out with the i want to be able to to say what i say but i don't want to be criticized for it and then and this is the the gist of the whole jk rowling thing i want my my freedom of speech but i don't want the consequences of, of saying things well you don't get one without the other yes there should be freedom of speech that doesn't mean that one people have to listen to what you say you can say what you like but you, you can't force people to listen to it and two it doesn't mean that you're not you don't end up with the consequences of saying these things you come out with hate speech there are going to be consequences from the, for that and on that eloquently rounded off by mr gay nhs fucking doctor we shall sign off for the night Twi- thank you very very twice much twice over <laughs> And I know you've done this to wind me up, so I rant about things. No, no, not in, not in the slightest. I, mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just an excuse to get your doctorates out there. Get your doctorates out for the lads. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, boys and girls, thank you very much for listening. We hope you have enjoyed it. We hope we have not offended you, because it's certainly not our intention. To all our gay, lesbian, bi, trans and queer friends out there, thank you very much. We shall see you again soon. Bye now.
The Exton Moss experiment featured Simon Exton, Ken Moss, and Alan Fogg. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The program was recorded in Trenton and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.